Welcome to the Build the Future podcast. My name is Cameron Weesey, and I'm your host. I've always been fascinated by the ideas and sentiment that drove American culture in the 1960s with the space race. A culture galvanized to dream about the possibilities of tomorrow. Whether it's food, transportation, cities, biology, or anything else, it was this cultural mindset rooted in optimism that the world tomorrow would be better than the world today. A mindset where people were compelled to build things, and I quote JFK, not because they were easy, but because they were hard. It's this desire to build and to dream that seems to have been lost, and something we're here to bring back. With Build the Future, we're here to promote the ideas and stories of those who see how the future can be better, and promote their plans to get us there. It's our mission to get you to dream about the possibilities of tomorrow dream about the future that you want to live in and inspire you to go build. Today, we're talking with Liam Cadigan and Nick Warren, the co-founders of Inspector. At Inspector, they're building augmented reality software that helps engineers building circuit boards visualize and test their boards in real time. In doing so, they're hoping to drive practical adoption of augmented reality technologies and reducing the friction in developing circuit boards, which, to be honest, are in just about everything these days. Let's jump right in. Tell me about the future you're building at Inspector. What's the vision? Really what we're doing is we're trying to change the way that electronics are developed. Right now, today, basically starts off that, you know, you have an idea that you're going to need to design a circuit board to realize, and then you end up using a piece of software to capture requirements, and you go through like several phases of the design with that piece of software. And at a certain point, everything is done to the best of your knowledge. And so what you do is you go and you have that board manufactured. And then it comes back to you and you test it. And, and if it works, you're, you're done. But if things don't go as expected, you've got to basically go through that whole process again. And so we're trying to come in there right when the board gets manufactured, before it's either done and in mass production, or before it goes into another design cycle. And we're trying to speed that part up with augmented reality. So that's what we're trying to do. We accelerate electronics development past manufacturing. Because I imagine like, you know, you said they get the chip, you check it out, you hope, hope to God that it works. Uh, if not, you have to repeat the process. But, but I, I, my, my guess is that like, that's, that's not like hopeful thing. That's something that happens every single time, right? It's really hard to get the initial chip design like perfected, right? Yeah, def- definitely is. And, and bugs, you know, glitches or even just manufacturing errors are commonplace. And people often just have their own experience and best practices they've developed on how to work on a circuit board in the lab to help guide them. And they're looking back and forth nonstop between their computer that they designed this thing in. And that's the only view of this board they've ever known. Uh, and then the real board that's on their desk. And uh, so that that's the what the kind of bridge that you can make with augmented reality to create the improvement. So right now it's, you have your, on your screen, on your computer, you're, you're viewing kind of the circuit board design, right? And then you're trying to like match it to like the physical circuit board you have in your hand. You're trying to make sure like all the, all the things line up, right? That's right. And, and the most basic feature of our software is that it will make that correspondence for you 30 times a second. And so while you're doing all this complicated electronics engineering, you don't have to worry about making that correspondence all the time. You can just let an inspector stand there and uh, do that for you 30 times a second. And uh, then 
We've built a lot of other great things on top of that to, you know, help you find even greater efficiencies, but that's the, you know, most simple value add of it for starters and what we saw starting out. Obviously, you know, everything is, everything has a circuit board in it these days. Like contextualize this for me. Like why, why is this like really important that we're able to kind of speed up the, the chip manufacturing process or chip design process? You know, right now, some of the earliest software products ever made were ones to go and design uh, faster and better computers, because basically someone got a computer and they started writing software for it. And uh, the, the people who designed the computers actually were the most willing to use them. So they started using computers to go and design faster ones. And that sort of, you know, took off. And that was like a snowball rolling down a hill. And so at a certain point, they had just taken care of all the different phases of the design and the, uh, the improvements are more marginal. And so now you can go and make this really big step change to that back end of the process from manufacturing into the lab at prototyping. And because electronics feeds 169 different industries right at its output, that can have a, a really big carry on impact if it's widely adopted over time. On a personal level, what gets, you guys, what gets both you guys really excited about? what you're working on. Why is this what you, you've kind of chosen to devote your career to at this point? We were all classmates back to when we were undergraduate degrees, and we all worked really closely on some student teams. Uh, the SpaceX Hyperloop team was probably our biggest like point of realization where we were working on some of the boards there. And it wasn't exactly there that we've seen that augmented reality is the solution, but we've seen that there are definitely deficiencies in this process. We are making up our own processes as we go. And on our work terms, we're not really learning or seeing like a lot of industry standard processes like there might be in software development, right? So then it was just kind of coming together when we were trying to figure out what were we going to do for this big capstone project that we had to do that really would make a big impact. And there it was really looking at, okay, like this is a map of everything that we're interested in. All of these cool new up and coming technologies like augmented reality, and then things that we just had in, intimate knowledge of electronics design and working in some of the lab tech roles, like on the Hyperloop team, like we couldn't afford to get anything assembled. Like we were doing all of this by hand, right? Like Liam himself, I, you were up for like 18 hours at one point, just like soldering for some of the stuff that we were doing, right? So like, it, it was just that, lab rat just being in there doing it all that it, it seemed like there was an inevitable solution here and if we weren't going to do it someone else was so like there was very clear output like there was a very clear milestone we were trying to get to so we just dove in i was very lucky after this hyperloop competition that the four of us did uh and then later on we brought on a fifth uh co-founder mahir who also you know had really saw this problem extensively at uh at, you know internships he had and jobs he had but I had an internship at Neuralink and I had to do kind of like really fine, uh, tiny work on, on tiny circuit boards. And I just wish that I had a smart microscope that could tell me what was what. And like, you know, when I'm in looking in the microscope and I put this wire here, what am I actually connecting it to? Right. But that, that sort of thing didn't exist. And then when we came together for this capstone project, we sort of put all the pieces together and then we realized like, oh, this, this could be a great idea if you could develop, you know, something to, to automate this for people. I want to kind of just circle back on the, the Hyperloop challenge because this is something Adam and I talked about and I assume you guys were all on the team together, right? Yeah, in 2017, yeah. And Adam was also involved with it. That just goes back to the small, close-knit ecosystem, right? Like 
we're just everyone grew up like working on these projects together. It's, it's great to see it continue on here now. Which is like absolutely amazing, right? Because then, then like everyone is everyone, and then everyone's kind of supporting each other's companies and projects and connecting everyone. And the thing that Adam said though about the Hyperloop competition, he's like, he was saying like that was the first time that he he like realized that there, were, there was like a new path forward for himself. Right? I think he was planning on going to like oil and gas, and then the Hyperloop competition, like, why would I go to oil and gas? Like, yeah, that's the default. Where if I recall correctly. It's like, oh no, we don't have to do that. Like, this is a new possibility. And so I'm curious, kind of like, if that had a similar effect for you guys, or you know, maybe how you how you think about the context or the the role of things like the hyperloop in providing new path options for people. Oh yeah, it, it definitely opened doors for me because just before I joined the hyperloop team, I remember I was cleaning up an internship at Exxon Mobil, and uh, I actually I had a good time there at Exxon but I really wanted something different. You know, I've kind of felt like I had just plateaued and I had seen everything that there was like the bigger industries like construction and oil and gas. And I was like, you know, it'd be cool to work in technology. It'd be, it'd be cool to work at SpaceX. And so then I just remember my last week at ExxonMobil, I was at my desk on the corporate internet or anything. I didn't care. I was applying to internships at SpaceX. I just realized like, I don't have a hope like with this current experience that I've built up. And so I like, I really need to diversify. And uh, a couple of weeks later, you know, I, I seen this SpaceX Hyperloop competition. I was like, oh, well, that's the perfect way to get in there. And, uh, you know, one thing led to another. And uh, then a year later, actually, I had transitioned to the point where after this competition, I was able to get an internship at, at Neuralink. And so then it's like I just went from ExxonMobil to like literally Neuralink. And it was uh, it was just crazy. The change in perspective couldn't couldn't describe it. I think my experience was a little bit different and my motivation was a little bit different. I was involved so memorial also had this new idea of a memorial center of entrepreneurship and when i got involved with it there wasn't there was just a prof and he had a promise of a trip to silicon valley in exchange for coming to his little lunchtime session and he would give you free pizza and you would learn about entrepreneurship and, and i knew about silicon valley like i was always into like the parts of silicon valley like movies growing up and like that entire world so to the thought of getting to go down to California, like that was the exciting thing to me. So like, I was already very engaged with, I want to do entrepreneurship by the point that we got involved with Hyperloop. But what I was really missing was like the technical rocket fuel to really be efficient at building things. So that's kind of why I wanted to get involved with it, just like everyone else that was so talented. So I appreciate everyone there that helped me along and taught me stuff along the way, because otherwise it just wouldn't have happened. Yeah. What do you, what do you think about the, like that draw to California resonates, resonated with me. I mean, I grew up all over the place and I was like, Oh, California, Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley. What do you guys think that is this like pursuit of the frontier? How do you think about that? And then like, yeah, you guys still kind of are, have set up shop in, in St. John's. So it's almost like, you know, the frontier has, has shifted to perhaps, you know, like the internet, right. Cause you can find everyone who's doing these sort of things. How do you guys think about that? I think the biggest draw of Silicon Valley and that entire world, at least from a very naive point of view, is just you can build anything you want. Dreams can happen overnight and the nerds and the geeks and the dreamers and the doers can go there and find a place that they belong. And that was kind of why I really was drawn to it originally. And then I think being down there and coming back, like there's a bit of a name in St. John's now of like Silicon Harbor. We, We won't have anything of that scale. But like we have a small version of that and it's it, it's very similar in a lot of ways where 
there's a lot of crazy things that are happening and you can go and do all those crazy things too. So, I mean, I think we were drawn to St. John's a lot by the need to bootstrap our idea. That's just when, when we started out with this, it began as a capstone project. And so sort of, you know, development just started and we would have been happy enough to, you know, have this open source repository on GitHub that was just, you know, part of our resumes and whatnot. Here's this cool project I did. And then we actually said, wow, you, there's actually a significant opportunity to commercialize this. And so then, it, you know, it snowballed from there, but we were already bootstrapping. And so, you know, St. John's let us live cheap and, and kind of work together and, and get this up to a point where we could actually go and start to sell it to people. I want to shift to talking about kind of the applications of, of AR, because one of the things I'm, that's like super cool to me about what you guys are doing is it's like you're, you're taking this technology and you're like doing something practical with it versus I think what a lot of people think of and think of AR, like the, the Snapchat filters, or maybe, maybe there's some cool stuff with like showcasing like your furniture in your apartment. But what have you guys seen that's been really cool and kind of what do you, what do you want to see moving forward in terms of kind of the, the real world practical applications of, of AR? It comes down to a, a couple different things. On the one hand, there's uh, like glasses-based applications, which involve uh, spatial computing. And so a lot of that is the, you know, glasses know you're in a certain location and then they can augment to you a bunch of interesting information. You know, if you were in a store, it could be a bunch of different sales and, and stuff like that. It could be a game like Pokemon Go, right? And then there's other, you know, more niche applications of AR where it's like giving people more precision, like in, in football, when they, you know, display those lines over, the field. I mean, that's, you know, really, really basic augmented reality. But like when they started bringing that in, people really appreciated it. And it gave them a lot of value to, to, you know, understand things better. So for us, we are like going down on the chip resistor and package level of a circuit board and kind of just giving people that extra augmented information to go and work more efficiently. And I think, you know, the impact can be that this type of work is more accessible to other people who are maybe less trained and uh, but know how to use tools and stuff. And if there's a device out there that can, you know, sort of very directly point them and give them instructions on how to do it, well, then that's a just huge, huge benefit. When we kind of approached it as well, like we were really interested in augmented reality and we went into this with the big assumption and the confidence that augmented reality was going to improve over the next five, 10 years. It's just an inevitability as the fangs start to do their own projects in AR um, when we start to see more adoption. And we were just trying to figure out, okay, using the hardware that's available today, what really practical non-gimmicky things could we do? And I mean, like for a long time, we were very hesitant to use the word augmented reality anywhere in our branding because oftentimes people treat augmented reality cinemas with like a game, but it isn't a game. Like this is a very functional use case. And I think it's a great demonstration of just when everyone is saying AR is a really big part of the future, there is actually some really tangible things that you can do here. And now that we're seeing like the LiDAR packs on all these phones and stuff, like it's only going to get more impressive, the practical applications that we can do with it. Yeah. Can you guys give me, give me some examples of some of the things that you're, you're looking forward to seeing. Well, one right off the bat, and it's more specific to us is higher resolution cameras. Because like conceivably, if you got to a high enough resolution, it would just be like you had a microscope on the back of your phone. And so we're not quite there yet, but 
you know, as the resolution, you know, bumps up, 4K is kind of the standard now. There's a couple devices with the 8K. As that becomes the standard, uh, you'll be able to, you know, zoom way lower, see things in a lot greater detail. Uh, and then also like LiDAR scans, like Nick mentioned. So being able to take in the object, not just with pictures, but like, you know, sort of scan it and really bring it into the digital world. And then, you know, hopefully overlay stuff back onto it afterwards when you're done as another big one. And then also just wearable platforms, I would, I would say is the third. And, uh, you know, some of those are big, bulky, well, they're getting much smaller to give them credit, but, you know, things like HoloLens and Google Glass. But then there's also some people who are doing, you know, like really sleek, almost smaller things. There's another company, uh, Vuzix, that does, you know, some great, just low profile AR wearable platforms. Yeah, I think the Google Glass has been an interesting one because it was very, very hyped up. What was that? Probably like seven years, seven or eight years ago. And then kind of kind of faded. But I, I get the sense like I, people have continued to work on maybe not Google Glass specifically, but on that technology. You have like the North, which is that one wearable glasses company. And then uh, I presume that, that Apple is working on something like this, although I mean, would be my guess from, you know, press stuff that's been leaked. And Nick, my guess, I know you, you worked at Apple for a little bit and you probably can't disclose, you know, what you worked on, but it, it seems to be like there are companies that are, are kind of pushing yeah. this forward. Facebook reality labs. That's a, that's a huge one. FRL they've got, and, and they're probably the most public, you know, with, with their developments and whatnot. If there was, there was a keynote delivered uh, about a few months ago now where they kind of showed everything is crazy. From that, like, what is what do you guys see our world looking like with when that technology is more widely deployed? I think it's definitely when we have like just glasses in general, like in the wide audience. It's going to be interesting to see just all the consumer apps that are taken to it. But I think just having that technology out there is going to enable a lot of enterprise because you definitely see about like so and so enterprise is deploying the new HoloLens to their factory floor to increase efficiency like this many percent. But just when there's no barrier to entry, when glasses are a commodity rather than like a big investment and like a big risk for an enterprise to take. And it's just something that they can download on their own time and try out and then go pitch to their manager. Hey, like we should do this. I think that's when we're really going to see it also take off for business use is when we have it available for the consumers and whatever the cool new filters, augmented reality XR games that come out. Like I'm, I'm excited to play those too, don't get me wrong, but it's gonna be really cool to see what those actual enterprise applications open up. I think there'll be once, you know, a good fraction of consumers have the glasses, we'll see a widespread spatial computing, which could be, you know, very helpful. And so basically wherever you are on earth, if you put on the glasses, you'll have certain things that are available. If you're in a store, you know, that store might, you know, give you a bunch of different content based on when you're within their, uh, their boundary, then everything can kind of be location specific and, and it, it can do a lot. But there's the other side of it, which is the way that it can help, you know, people who don't traditionally benefit from uh, computing, like, you know, people who work with their hands a lot, if you're in like, a, you know, a car shop or somewhere like that, now you can start to get extra information from, you know, computing that's more wearable because you've got the input now to interact with it. Normally you can't use a laptop if you're in a mechanic shop easily because your, your hands are busy, 
But once you take those input from like your vision or, you know, hand gestures, or even if you look at some of the companies, they are doing their own, you know, sort of neural interfaces that go off EMG and all these other different signals our bodies emit, then you can, you can handle the input side. So that'll be a big bridge to cross. It's interesting to think about kind of how the world evolves when we do have that kind of consumer technology out there and then all the, all the cool things we'll be able to build on top. Cause there is, as you said, like the, the fun games, like the sta- standard, like, Oh, what's the weather outside? And you're, you're looking around as if you need to like see what the temperature is when you're standing outside. I don't know. Um, but with, with, with cars and mechanics and even like medical, like the medical application are interesting too. Yeah. Yeah. All of those, even like, if you think about weather, like, you get some indication of the weather when you look out the window, but if you had glasses on, I mean, let's just pretend you could see, you know, the forecast as it changes over time, you know, maybe you can see a bunch of cool arrows that show you how the wind changes. And for some people that'll be useful for other people, they're going to want to, you know, kind of plug into a different part of their spatial compute, but it's all just, you know, things that aren't possible today. Paint like the, the hyper optimistic vision of this, right? Because it's easy to think like, okay, cool. If I'm going to store and I have, you know, AR glasses on, like, do I really want to be like, yeah, I could be seeing a bunch of ads and coupons and like all of that. Um, and it gets really kind of messy quickly if you, if you kind of get on that path, but if you take the opposite approach, it's like, okay, no, like this could be really, really, really good. Like what might that look like? That's definitely a good question. I mean, because a lot of times it's easier to look at Black Mirror and to feel so pessimistic of what are these technologies for sure. And I mean, obviously, there's going to be a bunch of new questions and like privacy and is already such an important conversation that we're having right now in technology. But like as soon as we introduce the spatial computing and all of this other layer of your entire sensory input, well, your, your visual sensory input, I should specify, like there's that entire thing of like, who's having access to that data? We, where is this going? So I mean, really to be like optimistic, I'd lo- love to see a lot of this compute happen locally, like never leaving these devices, like entirely based on these new architecture of chips. We, we, what else would we like to see? Like in terms of consumer behavior, like it would be really cool if all of the glasses companies could pump in the augmented reality underlay into like any sort of prescription glass. And it's just like a consumer staple. It's the same thing equivalent of an Apple watch right now, except more generalized. Some standardization between everyone so that, you know, you don't see people, people walking down the street with, you know, one set of glasses and and you say, oh, okay, well, they're just getting a bunch of, you know, cheap ads for soft drinks on those, right? Whereas I have my more premium glasses and, you know, I'm getting much more high-end uh, specific content, right? So it's like some standardization among, among everything would, would be great. Hopefully people use them in a way that benefits them and people f- feel like, okay, you know, my life is significantly better with this, but I'm fine to take it off and just be, you know, unaugmented for a while as well. Yeah, there's definitely that big thing of like not getting too diluted in reality. Yeah, yeah, it starts to make a blurrier line for sure between the analog and the digital world. So, how do you contrast that with VR? Right, it's probably better to have you know, not well, better subjective, but I guess like socially uh, more constructive to have you know AR where 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 we are kind of living in in a hybrid world versus like one where people are just kind of complacently sitting in a you know their high rise apartments with the VR headset on, you know. 
yeah, I, I think there will be some really useful collaborations that can happen from, you know, VR to uh, AR. And, you know, one of the big benefits of uh, something like Inspectar is that you can go and do uh, like teleengineering, basically. So people can just do a Zoom call and screen share a video feed of their circuit board. And then the person at the other end uh, can take control through Zoom and, and start to activate things. And uh, so that type of Tail engineering, like if you look at other applications, in our case, we're able to do it with just a screen, which is great for the state of the art today. But, uh, you know, for other applications, you might need something more immersive like the VR goggles, where you can make use of all those other hand and eye gesture inputs in order to interact with the other person who's in AR. Uh, so I think there could be some pretty interesting, you know, go-betweens uh, between it. Because ultimately, then it kind of reduces the, the friction to, you know, like work and collaborate not just, you know, within the same room, but like around the world. Cause like with that, it doesn't matter where the other person is, right? If they're in, you know, Buenos Aires, or if they're in, you know, Austin, Texas, or if they're in Antarctica, right? You can kind of collaborate um, in real time on stuff like that. Well, and I think the healthcare sector as well, and I know very limited, nothing about healthcare. So this is just speculation, but I feel like there's a good number of similarities between what they do there and what we do with Inspector, whether it's just like having a lab bench with all these different screens and all these different inputs, tests, measurement devices that you need. Similar thing when you're working, treating a patient, there's a lot of different inputs and things that you're monitoring there. Teleengineering, telehealth, like that all goes into the same sort of thing. Being able to have a world-class surgeon help a remote surgeon like through a AR, VR hybrid of a surgery there. Like I think those things are really going to be powerful and especially for a remote community of Newfoundland, like those things I think would be a big game changer for us here as well. So you can have, you know, like the best surgeon in the world who historically would have been, you know, capped at, you know, their, their local market, but instead they can go help perform surgeries for people all over the world. And then even, you know, pair like artificial intelligence, machine learning in there, like the, the machines could learn like, okay, how is this surgeon doing it? And then they could extrapolate and build a model off of that person's kind of surgical behavior. You know, so human is the best in the world to then go do that stuff and scale it up. Also as well, just let people get more specialized, more niche, like let people focus deep on what they're good at and do that at scale rather than do that just at the area that they're serving. Certain things too would be captured and able to be replayed that weren't before. So, you know, if people are wearing AR glasses, we, you know, we've talked a little bit about LiDAR scanning and who knows how it'll all be implemented. But if someone wearing AR glasses effectively has some type of recording of what that environment is in that room, well, now you can kind of go back with VR and almost replicate the scenarios and maybe do very, you know, uh, challenging and specific things that are hard to see in training because uh, it's, you know, a rare event doesn't happen that often. Uh, but then you can put someone there in VR and, and see how they react to it and, you know, teach them what to expect if it ever happens to them in real life. It's like the implications of that are crazy. I mean, anyone can get like the best education possible. Cool. You have, you know, best surgeon in the world, having all of their surgeries, you know, maybe anonymized and published. So that way then people can go and like, do the training exercises like in those high level situations and like be hands-on, which like wouldn't have been possible for. And just bringing that democratization like one step further, like we've seen what Can Academy and like all of these great educational 
revolutions have done on the internet. Like I anticipate a lot of this education will be accessible to whoever really wants to go deep on it. I mean, maybe in some of these niche cases, it'll be behind numbers of paywalls and very exclusive, but I, I, I'm sure there's going to be a lot available in terms of this content to the masses. It would be easy to tr create uh, training scenarios too, you know, if you were doing that, because now people can just sort of individually contribute and, you know, it's all done through software. So, you know, one person can kind of set up their, their VR training and then lots of people go and, and join in on it. You know, it doesn't need to be done by committee or anything like that at some big institution where people say, well, you know, is it worth this much money and, you know, fake mannequins and stuff like that to set up this disaster scene? That's be sweet. I want to kind of get you all's take on kind of how do we go from kind of this to the widespread applications? I think someone, someone else phrased this sort of question differently. They're like, what's like the iPhone moment for this technology, right? So it's, Cool. Everyone sees it and like, oh no, widespread adoption kind of gets kicked off. What do you guys think about the the iPhone moment for AR being? I think for the a lot of the consumer spatial computing stuff that we've talked about, it it's just lightweight glasses that don't look out of the ordinary. You know, someone who doesn't go online wouldn't think that you're wearing something out of a sci-fi movie, just simple, sexy glasses that look good. That will get it to the average consumer. Now, in, in workplaces, I think that, you know, the transition can happen a bit sooner. And, you know, so we've kind of with Inspector hold ourselves into what we think will be a good, really early use case of this, where there's, there's a lot of benefit to the end user and their professional work, and it can run off devices today that are out there. And so, you know, I think we're just hoping to kind of hitch along and, and ride that transition. You know, we're just kind of riding the wave, whatever that great iPhone moment for consumers will be. And uh, while that's forming, the, the phones today will, will still work and give people great value. What excites you the most about the future? Like, what are you really optimistic about? For me, I think there's a lot of opportunity for brain machine interfaces and neural interfaces to uh, actually step in here and, and help out a lot on the uh, input side. And I think there's a ton of really interesting work being done today on neural interfaces, both at the high end, if you look at a, a place like Neuralink, but also at the low end, if you look at, you know, some of the projects that uh, Facebook Reality Labs are, are putting off, trying to give people this, this extra input that they haven't had before. And I think that will really, you know, come in in tandem with AR to just help people get this, uh, this fully remote world that we all kind of have gotten a taste of, but now we actually have to go make it a, a perfect reality because there are some flaws with our fully remote lives today. Yeah, and I mean, on that vein of remote lives, I, I think what I'm really optimistic and, and really excited for is just increased communication bandwidth, especially for like rural remote areas, the entire Starlink um, constellation, and that has such big impacts for Canada as well, just it very well positioned for it. I think as we start to really enable a lot more communication bandwidth for everyone, no matter where you're at, and then you're starting to look at some of these applications of AR, XR, and the telestreaming of all of that data, I think that's when we're really going to see the world feel a little bit smaller in a good way. It seems like the one of the you know inhibitors of growth and progress 
like most places is just like bandwidth. It's like, how fast is your internet connection? Because my guess is like Silicon Harbor, if you will, would, would not have existed, like really probably couldn't have existed 15, 20 years ago, just because like the, uh, we didn't have projects like Google Fiber or even yeah, Starlink to, to provide high bandwidth internet. Or, or that may be, you know, my American presumptuousness. <laughs> no, no, I mean, you're, you're definitely in the right vein. Like, I mean, there are the metropolis regions here that are um, very well plumbed up for high speed internet and have been for the last several um, decades and it is quite reliable, but like there's a significant amount of the population still that just doesn't have access to strong communication. And you're starting to see like with COVID and everything, people moving out of big urban areas and looking for the next stage of their lives and more rural um, remote areas. And that needs to happen. And then also as we're looking to more IoT worlds and we're needing to get more clever about using resources, those need to connect to the internet. So it has to be something and either we need to install cell networks or get, get these uh, space constellations on the go. What Nick mentioned about global bandwidth is totally spot on because that can be a huge blind spot, right? If we have all of this available, but you aren't able to push and pull the data down, how, how do you go out and, and do it? So that's kind of like a separate problem that has to be solved in order for uh, AR to take to the masses. But I'm fully optimistic on the on the hardware companies that are out there developing AR, but then also the software companies that are just, you know, putting out the frameworks and packages to make it more accessible. What, what we've seen in the past few years is really good news for the future because the rate of development is accelerating. And I think that means we'll get there quicker than we think. Where can people find you guys? How can they support? I assume you're hiring. If people want to kind of go explore somewhere new, you sponsor visas to St. John's. How's that work? <laughs> so uh, if, if you want to find out more, you can go to uh, inspectar.com. And uh, then there's, there's a careers page there for anyone who's interested at the, in looking at the open positions. And uh, there is a free version of the tool. So I'd uh, put it out there to anyone who has a circuit board within their household, whether it's, you know, or Arduino or something to uh, take a few minutes and give it a go. We've got some free projects available. You can try it right on your phone without any extra tools and, uh, and just see how this all works. I mean, even if you don't have a circuit board in your home, if you have access to the internet, you can pull up a picture of the circuit board on your computer and that'll work just the same. So it's a great introduction to the technology just to get a feel for what we're doing and where it can go. Yeah, that's right. There's a tutorial project for, for anyone who's interested. Amazing. Sweet guys. Yeah. And hopefully uh, we'll get some people checking that out, give them, give them an opportunity to kind of explore technology they, they hadn't thought of before. And yeah, looking forward to uh, continuing to support and see, see how you guys progress and continue to grow. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having us, Cameron. Absolute pleasure. I mean, we love the podcast, love what you've been doing with it. So please keep it up. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Build the Future podcast. If you're building and want to get support, want to hear about certain topics or hear from certain people, shoot us over an email to hello at buildthefuturepodcast.com or follow me, Cameron, on Twitter at CamWeesey and we'll see what we can make happen. That's it from us. Until next time, go build.